So right, this is, this is the context for our series on wanderlust. What, what, what was I trying to outline last week? Wander, right, is a gaze to another. And that we really need to make sure that we're gazing our sights on Jesus and not on everything else that can overlap that. And the second piece to that is appropriate understanding of what lust is, right? It's not just sexual sin, although a lot of us get our understanding of what lust is and and, and all of that from uh, the book of Matthew, where Jesus is, in fact, talking about the lust of the eyes in a sexual impure way. But really, lust is a pursuit uh, to want to get everything that you need and everything that you want, to get all of your needs and wants met. And so I was talking about how we have to be very careful that we do not commodify things, meaning we take, we, we could take people, we could take a church, we could take family members, we could take a spouse, uh, we can take even the government, and we can even take God himself and we can commodify it as a business transaction, meaning I need you to do this for me. And if that is the relationship, it's not a relationship. It's one-sided, and you're commodifying the object and the thing, okay? Uh, and so this is just a, a question of the notion of commodification that we have to be very, very careful of, especially in American society that is, is very consumer-based, right? Um, there's, a, there's a goodness to it that mankind is able, through law, to pursue their economic interests and to better their life. It's a blessing from the Lord. It absolutely is, right? There's been more advancement underneath, uh, underneath uh, regulated capitalism uh, by Adam Smith, which is, you know, the, the, the wealth of nations in 1776. There has been more human advancement and more people coming out of poverty since the adoption of regulated capitalism uh, than any other time on planet Earth. So it's an unbelievable, beautiful thing. But we need to make sure that living in that type of system that we do not commodify people. And we don't take that and commodify God. And we don't commodify our spouse. We don't commodify the government. Okay? It's a very important thing. And so, you know, here's the question, right? Is the relationship to the object, the person, or even God being used for the sole purpose to gratify my wants and my desires? Right? It's something that we have to be very, very mindful of, especially in our human interactions with one another and also in the spirit. Because uh, if, if this is true, if you are engaging in this, man, that's a Goliath that you just need to kill. Amen? Amen. So, you know, in this sermon series, just paint a little, like, organization to it and vision to it, uh, is this. The, the, the purpose of this uh, series is really to educate, uh, to empower, and to mobilize the church, to mobilize us, empower us, educate us. Uh, to bring forth the gospel and bring forth the kingdom. So when we're interacting with the lost and we're interacting with people at work, we really need to make sure that we're not getting into this place of commodification of what you can give me. Because that's how the world operates. We're not to be of the world. Uh, and so th- this thing is, is really getting us focused on the mission of what we are supposed to be doing on planet Earth. And you know, there's just a sobering element. Jesus is not here on Earth. Okay, he's sitting on the right hand throne of the Father. So what does the Father have on earth to bring forth his kingdom? You and the Holy Spirit. Right? I mean, he's charged us 
and entrusted us to do the job and to continue the job that he started 2,000 years ago. So we really, you know, this is like the point of this. Like, what are we doing here on earth, you know? And we'll get to, I know some of you are probably real hungry on like, you know, how do we go to a place of evangelism? How do we go to a place of praying for people and bringing the kingdom? But we're doing this in a systematic, systematic version, right? You can't bring the kingdom if you don't kill your own Goliaths. You can't bring the kingdom if you're looking at everyone and you're looking at God as a business transaction. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, okay? And that's what we're, we're doing, but we're going to get there. And so, you know, I think largely the problem has been, particularly in the, in the Western church, is that the church has wandered. Uh, we have wandered from who and what we really are. And we've even moved into a place of lust of where I want to use the Lord as a way to get what I need. What I feel that I need. But it's probably really a want. So to, to look at this, um, you know, throw a little props to, uh, to, to, to Jamie Fitt. Uh, we were on a Zoom meeting on Friday and, and there was a little discussion of the scripture verse and really... It was beginning to pull on my heart, and when preparing for the sermon, I felt like it was a timely word um, because it was something that the Lord was speaking to, to Jamie and some other leaders in the region. Uh, and that is to be found uh, in, where am I? I'm in the wrong spot. Uh, in Second Chronicles. Uh, a little bit of a, it's probably a section of scripture that most people haven't read, or they haven't read in a while. Let's take a look. This is, uh, this is one of the kings of Israel, uh, King Uzziah. And we have an interesting telling here. So last week we were talking a little bit about King David, but here we have an interesting telling of, of King Uzziah. So 2 Chronicles chapter 26, this is uh, in verse 1. Now all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. Like, can you imagine that being 16 years of age and now you're the leader of a nation, you're king, right? Now he built Elat and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Yakolia of Jerusalem, of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Love when you see a king do that. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And, you know, just for the sake of time, the rest of the chapter is discussing essentially Uzziah's exploits, all the things that he did, building wonderful foundations to to Jerusalem and pieces of technology, and all this amazing stuff that he does. Because he's seeking the Lord and doing what is well-pleasing the Lord. And then in verse 8, it, it, it says here, it was very interesting. Also, the Ammonites brought tribute to Isaiah. His fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, for he became exceedingly strong. You understand, like, Israel at the time of, of biblical narrative is not a superpower, right? In, in many, most of the time, they're almost like an afterthought. The real big powers was Egypt to the south and Babylon or Assyria to the north. Right? Actually, Israel is sandwiched in between two major superpowers that control the globe. And Israel has times, particularly underneath David and Solomon, where they kind of do a little uptick. But for the most time, they're like, they're, they're like the wilderness between the two big superpowers. Right? But Uzziah brings this. But unfortunately, in 2 
Chronicles 26, verse 16, we see things start to change. But when he, Uzziah, was strong, his heart was lifted up. Not in a good way. Place of pride. Place of ego. And it became his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Like he thought he was so amazing. He thought he was so powerful that he broke Levitical law. The only ones that were to go into the, into the temple and to cast incense were the high priests. He's like, I'm the king. I know you're the king, but you're not a Levite. doesn't matter. I'm the king. But you're from the tribe of Judah, not of the tribe of Levi. I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. It's very interesting. I mean, like a system of checks and balances may blow your brain, but like, you know, the kings of Israel were coming from the tribe of Judah. They had political authority. But religious authority, in many regards, was done by a different tribe. It's a beautiful kind of actually like separation of powers. What's so really beautiful, we have to get Jose up here to teach about this, is that the coming of Jesus, right, he restores the two, right? right? Priesthood and political kingdom. He's the one that brings it together. But in the biblical narrative, they're separate. There's a separation of power in many regards. And if anyone tries to bring those powers together, it's profane before the Lord. And so Uzziah is taking his political power and he's infiltrating a, re a religious aspect of Israel. He's like, I don't care. I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. Now the priests, interesting, go in. The people that are allowed, they go in and they grab him and they pull him out. They're like, what are you doing? You can't do this. And then the scriptures say that he is penalized by the Lord. Um, verse 21, it says this, King Uzziah was now a leper until the day of his death. Because of what he did, by getting too puffed up, King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Yotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from the first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz, wrote about. Okay? So that's the context to that. And so, you know, one of the questions here is a key. How do we keep the church and ourselves in the place of the young King Uzziah before his heart was lifted up, right, before the ego rose? How do we do that? Because there's tremendous lessons in just this one story. It's a very, very important thing, I believe, in the modern world, the commodification of things. How do we keep our heart tender and how do we keep it in the right place? And really the answer is we need to just simply check the ego. Yeah, check the ego out the door. You really do. Um, because what happens here is the matrix and the origin really of all sin, and maybe you theological people can like come and tell me differently later, but the way that I see it is that really essentially all sin has been orchestrated by the, the lifting up of the ego, the lifting up of the heart. His heart became strong. I mean, he got prideful. Question here is, is the church getting prideful? Or are we getting prideful? Um, yeah, all sin originated from this. I mean, what was the, the original notion or really the beginning of sin? It really predates Adam and Eve. It really, it really comes to the place where sin enters the cosmos, if you will, with the fall of Lucifer. Let's turn to Isaiah 14. This is uh, the prophet Isaiah that's talking about the fall of Lucifer, right? The angel of light, the fall of Satan, Hasatan, the adversary. 
Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you, Lucifer, said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like El Elyon. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Hmm. So right what we have here is, 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 is Lucifer, to the best of my understanding, is the first being, right, that was created to fall to the victimhood of ego. I want to be like God. I want to set my throne above his. There it is. That's the that's, that's sin entering into the, the, the eternal plan. Now, a lot of us are like, well, no, you know, it's Adam and Eve. That, well, that, that, that's just the earthly realm. But in, in some regards, actually, I mean, I'm kind of coming off this off the hip here, but in like theological matters, it's almost like Adam and Eve would not eat of the fruit if Satan did not come and speak to them, and he only spoke to them because he fell from heaven because of his own ego. So what happens here is ego likes to beget more ego. Right? If you're an egotistical father, you're going to have egotistical sons. If you're an egotistical uh, pastor, you're going to have egotistical congregants. Okay? If you're an egotistical church, you're going to have an egotistical realm in which you are dwelling in. But what's really great here is Jesus teaches, and really even the Older Testament teaches us, the response to it. There's really only one way, I believe, um, to counteract the ego and counteract that sin nature. And really, the answer is, um, is going to be love. Love is the thing, is the element that checks the ego. Love is the answer. Now, love is essential for so many reasons, guys, right? We can, we can, I mean, you could do like, you know, the next three years teaching on love and just begin to scratch the surface. But for today's sermon, I feel like what, what the essential purpose of all of this is, 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 it is that love is the opposite of the ego. You know, Pastor Josh has, has, has given me a lot of good counsel on a lot of different things. But one of the things that I really have grown onto is, like, you need to work in the opposite spirit of that which is coming towards you, right? I mean, if, if, if hate is coming towards you, respond with love, right? If greed is coming towards you, respond with temperance, right? If someone's coming at you with raising your voice, you quiet your voice, right? You can diffuse the situation just by operating in the opposite spirit. And so in a macro sense, ego infiltrating the church or ego infiltrating us, we must respond to that ego with pure love. That's hard to do because the ego is powerful. It's extremely, extremely powerful. Look, ego takes. Ego desires. Ego commodifies things. What can you give me? Love gives. Love always thinks of others. Ego raises up the carnal. Love displays the spiritual man. Ego we get raised up. Love, Jesus gets raised up. I mean, I'm, I, almost, I almost like 
don't want to read the scripture verse because it's like, it's become such a cliche. But 1 Corinthians 13, love suffers long and is kind. If you're not suffering long to your spouse and if you're not kind to your spouse, you're not operating in love. If you're not suffering long after your own community, your own nation, you're not loving. If you're not kind to people on Facebook, on Instagram, people of other different political opinions, you're not displaying Jesus. Bar none, zero. I mean, it's just, that's it. Now, for us today, particularly with the notion of the ego, love does not envy. That's ego. Love does not parade itself. That's ego. Love is not puffed up. That's ego. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. That's ego. Is not provoked, thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity. What does that mean? Iniquity. Someone has fallen in a trap. Ha, my enemy has fallen into a trap. You don't find rejoicing in that. Because that's not love. That's ego. I'm right. They got what they deserved. That's not love. That's not Jesus. It's that simple. But it's so complicated because we want our ego puffed up. Because we look at the world and we look at each other, we look at religion, we look at faith as a commodification. Just give me what I want. Give me what I deserve. Oh, Satan. Oh, Adam. Oh, Eve. And we do it. I do it. We're humans. But a new Adam came. And we're to be not of this world. We're to be born again into a new creation. The ego has no grip. So let's take a look at love a little bit. You know, there's generally six different types of love in the Greek, right? So linguists would say, you know what is important to a society by the amount of words they have to describe, right? The Inuit in, uh, in, in the Arctic, uh, every, they have like 30-something names or something like that for snow. Like we have snow, ice, slush. It's so important to them because it's part of their society. They have so many different names to describe the different textures and the different types, right? Hence Israel. Israel has like, what, 50, 70 names, I think, of, of, for God, right? Muslims have a, a bunch of names for Allah, uh, but one name that they do not have is Father. Now you see what's going on here, right? Ishmael did not have a father. Abraham rejected him and put him into the desert. And the descendants of Ishmael developed him, right? My mic time? Oh, sorry. Gotta get that lapel. So what people, how many, what they have, what a society uses a vocabulary word for explains how their relationship to that item is, okay? Now, in America, we have love. I love cheesesteaks. I love God. I love my wife. I love Josh. I love my kids. What's going on, man? You know? So we go to the Greek. I guess the Greeks, probably because they're more Mediterranean than the English who got their language from more Nordic, more 
tempered people, I guess, emotionally. <laughs> so I, I like how you spun that. Stoic. It's funny. Oh, man. Yeah, so the Greeks. Here we go. You guys probably know. Many of you know all this, a lot of these, right? Eros love, which is erotic love. That's sexual love, right? Love between spouses. Uh, or one type uh, among spouses, of course. And then we have philia, uh, which is where you get Philadelphia from, right? The, the city of brotherly love, friendship. Uh, we have uh, ludos, which I think we need a little bit more of this in our society, especially during COVID. And that is a playful love, Right? It's, like a, it's, it's an enjoyment that we have. Like, you know, Jose and I went out for a run yesterday, and we were just, like, talking, like, man, how good is it to just be running outside, you know, just running together, and, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a joy, right? There's a love that is there, enjoyment, right? A pleasure, very good, yeah, exactly. Uh, there is pragma love, uh, which is very important, because this is this, is, this is what I can see in, in, some, in some marriages, right? They've built their love so much on the eros, the philia, and the ludos, uh, that they haven't allowed themselves to grow into a place of pragma, which is pragmatic love, which is long-standing love. It's a love that goes the test of time, right? That's an important jump. And, of course, there's agape love, uh, which the Greeks would say is like the all-encompassing love that governs the universe, but in the New Testament, agape love is God's love. He is that all-being love, right? Uh, and then, of course, uh, there is philantia. Uh, probably in, 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 uh, in Greek would be philantia, to be honest. Uh, and that is the love of the self. Yeah, they don't like to talk about that one. And here's the thing. Philantia. Philanthropy, yeah, cool. That's probably, that's probably the Greek connection, probably. Um, what is this? This is, this is the love of the self. Now, that's not necessarily bad. You should love yourself. That's the place of healthy self-esteem, right? But if the love of the self outweighs the other five, we've got some problems. Right? That's the nuance of it, right? Now, what do we, what do we have here is, is this, right? As a born-again believer, through Christ Jesus, you are called to love. You are loved. And we will not have proper, proper love of self if we're not registering and understanding the love that God has for us. I mean, it's just so principle. It's like, you know, it's like, Jesus is like, they're not going to know that you are my disciples by how many people you raised from the dead. They're not going to know that you are my disciples because of how hard you pray. They're not going to know you are my disciples uh, because of how loud you sing. He literally says in John 13, they will know you that you are my disciples by the love you have from one another. So last couple weeks, last couple months, last couple decades, are you one of his disciples or not? I mean, really? Not a Christian, but a disciple. Are you walking your life in love or not? Because Jesus is looking down and he's like, I don't know you're one of mine. Unless you're walking in love. All right, so ego, right? Because ego and love, they battle each other. Ego is the wrong type of love of self. They battle each other, man, and that's why I'm saying we need to learn more about love to keep the ego in check. Ego is the place of the I. 
Love is the place of our understanding of Jesus. Now notice, I said understanding. Uh, It's not enough to know Jesus. We have to understand Jesus. What does it mean to understand? Understand is applied knowledge. You can know everything about Jesus, but you don't understand him unless you're applying that. And is if it, unless it's seen in your life, seen in love, because everything else is just clanging symbols, right? So maybe we're really like, I mean, come to Jesus moment. How much of the love of Jesus am I displaying? How much of the love of Jesus am I walking in? Or how much of the love of self am I walking in? How many times do I want to be justified and vindicated in my life? You know, I need just to add a little fire to this. James chapter 3. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise in understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, if you have envy for others in your heart, and also if you have self-seeking, that's all the stuff I was talking about, a commodification of all things. If you have those, do not boast. Do not lie against the truth. For this wisdom, these emotions, if you will, does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Do, you, do we hear this? The ego, the want of what I want and what I desire, and I, everyone else, forget about it. I'm going to use my relationship to get what I want. I'm going to use God to get what I want. I want myself to be puffed up. I want that. I want that. I want that. James is saying it is demonic. This is not just like this dude has a big ego. No. You're operating in the demonic. That's how serious this is. This is not just like, oh, I have a big ego, I need to bring it down. No, you're working and walking in the demonic. Now, you're not damned to hell kind of thing, but it's a, it's a spirit. Now, why is it so demonic? Because the self-seeking is exactly what brought sin into the world. The falling of Lucifer was all from the ego, all from the self-seeking. All from the envy. That's how powerful that little thing is. Mario, if you can come on down, please. I told you a little straightforward today. I'm not saying that you necessarily have to do this, but you know, maybe just to lighten up the load a little bit. I want to say, I'm not saying you have to do this. I don't know if this is even a good idea, but I think it's a good idea for me. You know, I, I, I like philosophy, which is kind of ironic because we were just talking about like Paul saying like, you know, earthly wisdom and all that kind of stuff. But I find that there's, there are nuggets of truth in, 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 in some of this stuff. And one of the branches of, of philosophy that I, that I kind of gravitate towards, um, uh, Interesting enough, because of what Eileen said, it was uh, Stoic philosophy. And uh, it was a couple of the, the, the Stoics 
Greek philosophers uh, that uh, Seneca would do these really crazy things to make sure their ego was in check. Right? Uh, Seneca was, uh, was essentially an emperor king, and uh, what, what he would do is he would purposely, one day a week, he would dress himself as a beggar, and he would go into the market. As a king, he would dress himself as a beggar just so he could feel what it was like. Right? And so, like, I, I sometimes do, like, weird things. Just, I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm just being real with you. I do things on purpose just to, uh, right? Silly things. Um, remember, like, just last week, a guy at work was making fun of, essentially, this is so weird that a grown person would do this. He was making fun of, like, my boot to to, to genes ratio or something. That was a really kind of weird. It was some guy at work. And I was like, okay. And so the next day, I made sure that I wore the same thing. And I made sure that I would just go in front of him. Now, maybe that's my own ego being a stubborn German. I, I get it. That very well could be that. Uh, but part of it was really just me, like, saying to myself, like, I want to feel that a little bit. I want to feel that little sting, you know? I don't know if that's necessarily completely theological or biblical. I'm not saying that you need to go do that because then you go down a very bad, rough road, right, of like the self-flagellation of, of, of the early Catholic Church which is a complete mess. But it's a notion of like, you know, how much do you want the gratification from others? And how much are you just like, I don't care? Like, I li- like I'm not saying I'm there yet, but like literally I don't care. Because the ego has to be that far removed. I need to, need to be displayed in love. How can a Christian have an ego problem anyway? It's really bizarre. Well, I consulted uh, psychology just to get a, a little basic understanding of how the Lord designed our brains. It says the ego gets called to action by functional areas of the brain related to emotions. When you feel a threat to your self-esteem, strong emotions tend to rise up to protect the ego. So, we respond with inappropriate emotion. Because our brain, the grid, of our, great, the grid of our bodies, whatever, is trying to protect us. So the ego flares up so the self-esteem can be restored. But, you know, in a spiritual realm, this is, like, demonic. Right? That's the sin nature. I need to emotionally respond to something because my ego is being hurt. Wow, is that demonic. What's really going on here is this. Big egos are big shields for empty space. Big egos are just acting as a shield to an emptiness that is inside of a person. I need to protect, put the shield up. You're not getting through this. I respond with the uplifting of the ego. I respond with the uplifting of emotion. And really what's going on here is a really sad thing. It can very well be that born-again believers who are getting their ego puffed up, it could be this, that we are simply looking for love in the wrong places. It could be that we actually are looking for justification in the wrong places. It could be that we're actually looking for value from the wrong places. We're looking at it externally. 
I know this is a shocker. My wife does not justify me. My wife does not give me value. If I operate that way, I will always be looking to her to feed my ego. I do not look to the church and your accolades or your criticisms to justify me or to value me. Because if so, I will just appeal to the masses. And it can never be thwarted because it always just grows. What you have to come to a place is whatever is going on around me, I am loved for my Father. He calls me. Behold what manner the love of the Father has given unto man. That we should be called sons and daughters. We're called children. That he died for me. You have to get your justification from him. Not what you look like. You have to get your value from him. Not what's in your piggy bank. You have to get this from him. Because in normal times, you're just going to be an egomaniac. And during bad times, man, you're not going to know what is going on. So we need to get this in check. The ego is raised up when we look outside of the agape love. A little proof text for some of this. Uh, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen to this by Paul, extremely learned man who could probably be making lots of money and living a very comfortable life and could probably disprove almost anyone in the Roman Empire with his sheer intellect. Knowing three languages, the equating of possibly two PhDs, scholars say. He says, all of that is for naught. What lives inside of me is Christ crucified. I know that love and I register that love. And if I operate in that love, it just, I can love other people. Uh, John 15. John 15, abide. How do we counteract the ego? As a father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. What does that mean? It means to register and to contemplate and to understand that he loves you. And you don't have to be justified by your, your views and your opinions and your thoughts. You don't have to. In fact, if you do, it's actually demonic because it's self-seeking. So abide in him. He's the example. God comes to earth. Did he seek justification? Did he seek vindication? Did he seek, I am right? No. He got on a cross and appeared to not be vindicated. And appeared to not be justified. But he goes to the cross knowing that his justification and his vindication is from God, not from man. And the fruit of that is you. The fruit of that is me. So if Jesus is the model, how did he operate? 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments. Abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. Laying down your life for your friends is not necessarily dying in battle. Laying down your life for your friends is not necessarily being a martyr. Laying down your life for your friends is actually more difficult. You put down the ego. That's laying down your life for your friends. Your spouse comes to you with something. A friend comes to you. A stranger on the street comes to you. You push down your life. You push down your ego and you reside and abide in love. Now you tell me after service if I or you are walking in that. The day is approaching. Let your gentleness be known to all men for the Lord is near. We got to walk in this, guys, especially at this time in our nation. You know that. All right. So let's go back. It's kind of very biblical today, or very rabbinical today. Let's go back. And why don't we stand? Isaiah 6. Isaiah is speaking. He's taken into a vision into the heavenly realm. And it says, Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I, Isaiah, said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I, Isaiah, said, Here I am, send me. Hineni, shalacheni. Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this to the people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing. But do not perceive. Isaiah the prophet has a heavenly vision of a purification of his lips. And a call. A call to action to be a prophetic voice to his nation. Send me. Let me have the message of the Lord to turn the hearts of a nation back to Yahweh. I mean, I don't know, does does anyone want that type of calling? Purify me, O Lord, so I can have a calling and anointing to go forth and to preach a prophetic message to my nation that they would turn back to you. But the linchpin to all of this is this. 
Before Isaiah gets this call, we have a context. Isaiah 6, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What's going on here, guys? Start off with the life story of Uzziah. Hardiness of heart. Ego was lifted up. He gets leprosy. But once that man dies, once that spirit dies inside of you, you get the heavenly visitation. You get a message and a prophetic voice to speak to a nation. To have their hearts turn to him. King Uzziah, to really put a little gravy on the meat and the potatoes here, King Uzziah was a political system that was being raised up. For those that are in the know, catch it. Uzziah was not a Levite. Uzziah was meant to bring worship to the Lord as a tribe of Judah. But he co-mingled it, didn't he? He decided to gain governmental authority and authority that he did not have. And his heart was lifted up. And the penalty was leprosy. But once that king, once King Uzziah, once the amalgamation of, 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 Jamie, do I go there or no? I, I need a witness. Once a King Uzziah that was lifted up, who co-mingled his job and responsibility to be a king, and he melded that with, the, with responsibility of faith. When he did that, he got leprosy. Once the notion of spirit of faith and government which was bound together was destroyed, then Jesus was lifted up. And if you don't accept that, with all due respect, we could talk later, you have ego. The church has been operating in ego. Our self-seeking. This is what I want. This is the president that I want. This is the law that I want. And many of it is in accordance to the gospel. But if that's lifted up, God can't be. If we lift that up, like King Uzziah, God can't be lifted up. God is lifted up when a King Uzziah is put to rest. Then the prophetic voice can go out. And so how do we do this? For 80% of the white evangelical church, this is going to be a hard week. Statistically, 80 or 90% of white evangelicals voted one way. It's to bring down the governmental systems in our heart, which could be a displaying of ego. And to come to a place that says, Lord, I don't want kings lifted up. I want Jesus lifted up. I'm not putting my energy into earthly kings. I'm putting my energy into King Jesus. 
because I want a pure lips. I want a pure heart. I want to operate in love. There's no self-seeking. There's no I want to be justified. There's no I want to be vindicated. Because the Lord is speaking to a bride right now. The Lord is speaking to a people. I have a prophetic message. I have the gospel. And I need someone. We need to be a people that says, here I am. Send me. But to be sent, we need a purification of lip. To be sent, the King Uzziahs need to be brought down low. So King Jesus can be lifted up. The King Uzziahs is not just the political or earthly kingdoms. The King Uzziahs is the puffing up of the ego. The puffing up of the self. Jesus, we just come before you. And we just say unto you, Lord, that we want to be a people of purity. Lord, we, we repent before you if, our, if, if any political conversations have not been seasoned in love. Lord, if, if any of our, our, our political talks or any of our talks with just people even outside of politics was from a place of self-seeking, a place of boasting, a place of vindication, a place of justification, Lord, I pray that we would just surrender that to the cross. And yes, we would live out our convictions. But the biggest conviction be bringing forth the gospel of Jesus. Abiding in your love. Not looking to be vindicated by anything except for you. Father, I pray that we would be a church that could control our egos by having the egos die and love being lifted up. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that would lay our lives down for our brothers and our spouses and our family, Lord, by putting down the ego and say, I'm not seeking myself. I'm seeking the kingdom. I'm seeking you, Lord. I just encourage you right now. If the Lord is, is just putting his finger on that place of the ego. If you feel that you've, you've, you've lived a life of, of just trying to be vindicated all the time. Being justified. Jesus wants to justify you right now. Jesus wants to vindicate you right now. Jesus wants to show you how awesome you are in his love. So just ask if you need to be set free from some of the ego that you come on down. Don't let ego keep you from coming down. So we want to keep this place, this sanctuary, a place of of allowing the Lord to finish that work. So please have a wonderful week and just keep your conversations for the multi-purpose room or out in the lobby. We'll be here Sunday. Sorry, we'll be here Wednesday praying for the glory, 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 hallelujah of the Lord to march forth in the land.